The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is the first day of our summer seven-day session. It's the 10th of January 2019. And uh, for these first few days of session, we're going to um, read from uh, the writings of a contemporary teacher, um, Martine Batchelor. She's uh, still alive as far as I know. She was born in 1953. She's French, uh, does most of her teaching um, in the UK and sometimes in the, in the USA. Uh, she's married to uh, Stephen Batchelor, also a well-known author. Uh, they live in the south of France and travel widely teaching. And Martine has written many books, uh, including uh, one called Buddhism and Ecology, another one Meditation for Life, uh, Let Go, and A Woman on the Buddhist Path. We have a couple of these as well as the one we're going to look at this morning. And we'll be um, skipping around in these, in these texts. Um, the one we're going to be reading from this morning is called Principles of Zen. And um, a small biographical blurb on the back. We don't have a lot of information about her. But Martine Batchelor was a, a Buddhist nun in Korea for 10 years. Um, most of that time she was training under great uh, Kusan Sunim at Songwangsa. And for about four or five years, um, towards the end of her 10 years of training there, um, she acted as um, an interpreter for Kusan Sunim in, in Doksan and other, on other occasions. So she was um, really exposed to um, an unusual way to his teaching methods. This was also the case for Roshi Kaplo and, and um, Yasutani Roshi. Got to kind of um, be a fly on the wall uh, in in the witnessing uh, teachers working with a whole lot of different students. Um, at the end of that ten-year period, um, was when Martin met. Um, Stephen there in, in uh, Korea and they got married and came back to Europe and um, they were part of a community called the Sharpen North Community in Devon and um, Martine was one of the guiding teachers at Gaia House and this book um, that we're going to be reading from is a really excellent um, short but to the point, introduction to Zen. Unfortunately, it's now out of print or, or um, we'd be um, selling it along with the other books we have at the center. Um, and it's, I find it useful uh, at the beginning of the session to kind of go back to basics. Um, this helps us all to um, maintain our, our beginner's mind in relation to the practice. And so that's what we'll be doing, reading from this. We'll start with the introduction um, and just be reminded of some of, some of the basics of Zen practice. Starting about a paragraph into the introduction. And here's what she says. Zen actually means meditation. It comes from the word dhyana, which is Sanskrit. Dhyana means meditative state in the Buddhist tradition. This word was transliterated as Chan by the Chinese when Buddhism went from India to China. And then the Chinese character uh, was pronounced Son in Korea and Zen in Japan. Zen has many aspects. It has grown within the Buddhist tradition over many centuries in different countries. It has influenced the cultures in which it has developed as well as being deeply influenced and changed by those same cultures. 
For this reason, there are various manifestations of Zen. A Chinese Zen monk or nun does not wear the same robes as a Korean or Japanese one. The temples also look quite different. Chan Chinese temples are very often made of stone and subdued from the outside. Korean Son temples are made of wood and extremely colorful. And Zen Japanese temples are also made of wood but very monochrome. It's wide, wide variation. He's just, just using these, these physical things as examples of that. Zen practice is slightly different from country to country. However, there is a certain body of texts and principles that are common to all Zen schools. The idea of the Mahayana and the Bodhisattva vows, of Buddha nature and sudden awakening, all of which I shall explain in detail. Zen is about self-development, about experiential practice, which helps you to see life directly and to act with wisdom and compassion. It is something that you do while learning non-doing. This is um, one of the paradoxes of Zen. Something you do while learning non-doing, not doing. I started to practice Zen when I became a Buddhist nun in South Korea. I studied under various Korean Zen masters in particular, Master Kusan, who inspired me with his great kindness, lightness, and incisive mind. I stayed 10 years, and it was an opportunity to practice meditation 10 hours a day for six months of the year, and to live a Zen monastic life in a traditional Buddhist country. Um, in Korea, they do th uh, two, each year, monastics would do two, three-month Sashins. So if you can imagine doing this schedule that we're doing now, not just for seven days, but for 90 days, gives you an idea of the kind of um, intensity of the practice. Though I have heard that uh, from people who've attended the, these um, ango or three-month retreats in Korea that quite a lot of sleeping gets done sitting up in the zendo, you can imagine, with that kind of schedule. The monastery was nestled deep in the mountains, covered with pines, azaleas and maples. It was a simple life, with few amenities and a hot bath once every 15 days. The days followed the sounds of the bells. It was a disciplined life, but also a liberating one. Slowly, one realized who one truly was and how one was so deeply connected to the whole world. Zen can be very dramatic but also very ordinary. When I left the monastery and joined a Buddhist community as a layperson in England, my second training started to put into daily practice what I had learned all those years. Zen has to be lived to be true Zen. And I have to say this, this um, was my experience too after coming back to New Zealand after 12 or 13 years in a uh, very structured environment that a second kind of training uh, started uh, once I'd left that very structured uh, supportive environment and that was, a, that was a great challenge to uh, put the practice into practice in uh, situations where uh, people I was interacting with um, were not practicing. In this book I intend to look at Zen in its manifold aspects so that the reader might have a comprehensive view of Zen and its riches and might be inspired to live a Zen life of love, creativity and freedom. In the first chapter, following the, this introduction, is headed up by basic ideas and principles. And the first section is 
entitled Mahayana, the Great Vehicle. All Zen schools belong to the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. Mahayana means great vehicle. This Buddhist tradition is known as great because it contains various different approaches to the spiritual path. The different approaches appeal to different people, thereby allowing as many as possible to be liberated from suffering. Zen is not only for monks and nuns, but also for lay people, ordinary men and women. Anyone can practice this path and be liberated regardless of status, knowledge or gender. And in the, in the West, it's probably about um, 95 or 90, even 98 or 9% uh, practitioners, uh, lay people, practicing Zen or Son. One of the characteristics of Mahayana Buddhism is the Bodhisattva ideal. A bodhisattva is someone who dedicates his or her life to enlightenment and to helping others achieve it for themselves. There's two aspects, two prongs to the, to the vow. Bodhisattva means enlightenment being. The bodhisattva practices the six parameters of generosity, ethics, patience, effort, meditation, and wisdom. Paramita, that which has reached the other shore, is generally translated as perfection. By developing and cultivating the six paramitas, one is able to reach the other shore of enlightenment. Um, and it's, it's understood that there isn't any other way across to this other shore except by means of these paramitas. So they, they're essential to enlightenment. Generosity, ethics, patience, effort, meditation, and wisdom can be, can be helpful to remember this when we're practicing these, especially patience. You can only practice patience when you're experiencing difficulty, discomfort, and, and remembering that um, it's essential, this, this, this uh, virtue of, of patience is, is it's absolutely essential that we develop it in order to awaken, can help us to um, be patient, to tolerate difficulty. The Bodhisattva starts on his or her journey by awakening the deep motivation to free all sentient beings from suffering and by taking the Bodhisattva bow, making the firm resolution to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Sometimes the, um, the image that is used uh, for this, this, um, uh, these two things that always come in tandem working on one's own liberation and helping others to liberate themselves. The image of somebody who is drowning. If, if you're drowning, um, you can't help rescue somebody else. You have to have developed a certain amount of buoyancy and facility with staying afloat and swimming in order to be able to um, help somebody else who's struggling. In the Zen tradition, the vow is expressed in a fourfold way. In many Zen ceremonies, the four great vows are generally chanted to conclude them. They are also chanted at the beginning of Zen retreats. 
They are considered the foundation of Zen practice and are the motivation for practice itself. Now, these are the same as our four vows that we chant at the end of blocks of sitting and at the end of ceremonies and so forth, chanting. And just read out the version that uh, Martin Batchelor gives here, because it's sometimes helpful with these um, things we chant very often to hear a different translation, and it can just help to illuminate um, the different facets of um, these things that we chant, um, perhaps help us to just shed a slightly different light on them or understand them in a deeper way. And um, her version goes as follows, very close to ours, quite close to ours anyway. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to cut them all. Dharma gates are limitless. I vow to penetrate them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to achieve it. One important uh, point to notice with these four vows is that the first one is about saving sentient beings, saving others. Numberless. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Sometimes uh, people find this just too much, uh, kind of overwhelming, and, and, and sometimes worry about, about taking this vow. Um, something that um, Alan Wallace, the, the great Rajrayana teacher, said into, in response to a question about somebody's concerns I found very useful is we don't have to keep some abstract notion in our mind of, of the infinitude of, of sentient beings and, and think that we have to try and save them all at once. He said, just concern yourself for the ones you encounter, um, whether it's, you know, an, um, a spider crawling across the floor, or or a person you meet in uh, in the supermarket, and our, our job is just to um, liberate those we meet, those we encounter, and whatever that means, it can be as simple as um, smiling. In the case of somebody we encounter in the supermarket, or um, taking care not to step on that spider as it makes its way across your kitchen floor. The very last of the four vows is the one that deals with our personal liberation. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain in our vision. That's the last of the four. In, in Christianity, the image is used of a shepherd who, um, for, for um, Christ actually, is, is called a shepherd. And it's because the shepherd um, comes behind the flock rather than going in front of it. So it's the same, it's the bodhisattva principle right there. Others go ahead. For a bodhisattva, the practice is undertaken out of compassion and a great aspiration. One of the important figures in the Zen canon is the bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, or Kanon in Japanese. Kwan uh, Seom in Korean. Kwan Yin means the all-seeing, all-hearing, the being who sees and hears all the cries and pains of the world. She is represented either as a female figure seated with a slender vase containing a bamboo branch and with a young attendant close by, 
or standing with a thousand hands and in each hand an eye to see the suffering, sufferings of all beings. Actually, there are so many different forms that she takes in the iconography. And this is partly um, an expression of the nature of compassion, which adapts to the situation, which um, uh, responds to suffering uh, in whatever form is needed in order to... Um, relieve that suffering. There are various practices associated with the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Some people chant the name of Kuan Yin over a period of time to help them develop concentration. Some write ver write, recite various texts and repeat mantras associated with Kuan Yin with the aim of focusing on her compassion and mercy. Others invoke the name of the Bodhisattva in times of great difficulties in the hope that Kuan Yin might help them due to her great vow to save all beings. And this practice especially comes out of the chapter 25 of the Lotus Sutra, which goes, in, goes into her powers of uh, salvation and liberation and how she responds to all people in all kinds of difficulties. In Zen, compassion is linked with wisdom. The two are inseparable. So it is compassion that comes from a selfless intention, but also a wise intention. We're not being kind because we're expecting something for ourselves or because we know what is best for us is best for other people. We act compassionately after listening to the needs of others and also knowing our own limitations. So we respond from where we are. We, we do have limitations. Um, we're, we're, um, we don't want to get caught up in, in uh, an, an impossible to meet ideal that we might hold. But even given our limitations, we can um, we can find a way to respond when, in, when we encounter suffering. Generosity is very much a part of this compassion. And of course, it's the first of the parameters. So again, giving. Being generous in mind and heart towards ourselves and others. Not being kind only to people we like, or who are pleasant to us, nor only when we have plenty of time and it suits us. The same compassion could be seen as very altruistic and demanding, but as one cultivates Zen, one realizes it is within us already, and Zen practice helps us to lower the screens and barriers which stop our natural, wise, and equanimous compassionate from flowing freely. Uh, this t teaching is that it's, it's these Compassion is the, the equality of our Buddha nature. It's, it's in us all, but often buried under our conditioning. But one of the, I could say one of the, the, the signs that our practice is working is um, when we, we develop greater compassion, greater tolerance. It may be as something as, 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 um, simple as things that used to make us really angry, we don't get angry anymore about them. Things that really used to annoy us, people who annoyed us, or things that people did. And we find we don't um, explode or just become gripped by uh, anger anymore. The next section is headed up Buddha nature. In Buddhism, there are various schools of thought about Buddha nature. Some traditions see it as a seed to develop in practice over eons, 
and some see it as a natural state that is covered by our delusions and can be uncovered at any time. Zen belongs to the latter approach. The Zen tradition was very much influenced by the Avatamska Sutra, which states that all sentient beings are Buddhas and all Buddhas are sentient beings. I think it's fair to say that we have both these strains active in Zen, both this notion of um, we just have to um, uncover our compassionate nature and a sense that, that there is a, uh, a cultivation that is happening that um, is a gradual unfolding. Next section, Buddha is mind, mind is Buddha. Zen reacted against the idea that enlightenment and Buddhahood were remote conditions. And this is the danger with that notion of um, Buddha nature as a seed, seed that needs to be developed over eons, because that can just seem like an impossible thing, so, so far off that uh, maybe we wouldn't even get started in the first place, because it seems so remote. So, that, so Zen reacted against that, that traditional notion within the Buddhist teaching. Zen is saying, look, here and now, we're alive, we can see, hear, taste, smell, think. We can be a Buddha if we only let ourselves be one. And this is true. In fact, we are being a Buddha moment by moment. We're, we're walking the path even, even when we're unaware of doing so. In peaceful and clear moments, but also when we respond wisely and compassionate in difficult circumstances, we realize that there may be more to us than we think. Zen is not about becoming an idealized perfect person but more about living who we are and can be in our more spacious moments. So it's being realistic. There are moments when we're certainly um, uh, not fully expressing our deepest potential, when our Buddha nature is more, more um, let's say, obscured. And then there are moments when we are expressing it more more directly. From this idea of Buddha nature being intrinsic came the dilemma. Why can't we see it and why should we practice? From these questions arose the debate about sudden and gradual awakening and practice which exists to this day in the Zen tradition. One that some that emphasize the sudden, some that emphasize the gradual. Some get Zen schools believe that practice and enlightenment are both sudden, which raises the question, why does it take even ancient Zen masters at least 8 to 12 years for any breakthrough to happen, and why do they continue to practice afterwards? Korean master Chinul's way of looking at this debate seems to resolve these questions. Uh, just doesn't have a bibliography. I just wanted to check what his dates are. I, I forget them, but he's, um, I think, around maybe twelfth or thirteenth century. But one of the greatest of the Korean masters. So he has a way of dealing with this this question. He suggests that enlightenment is sudden followed by gradual practice, which in turn might help to provoke more awakening, awakenings, followed by more practice. And not only provoke more awakenings, deeper understanding, broader understanding, but also to bring what insights we have in, a, in sudden flashes, to bring those into our, our daily activities. Because even after um, a, a Kensho experience, we still have uh, habit forces active in us, and and this it takes work to 
um, actually live um, fully, fully embodying our an insight into no self. The habit of self is still there. In this scheme, true practice starts after an initial insight, which makes us see our true Buddha nature for a moment, however fleeting. This in turn gives us great confidence in ourselves and the practice. And this is one of the differences between practice before and after an initial uh, Kensho experience, that the Kensho experience can can give us uh, greater confidence and faith in the practice. And so we, it, the practice becomes more, more solid, more um, uh, continuous, because we're not um, rattled so easily by difficulties. It's not that there aren't still difficulties and struggles in the practice, but we, we can encounter those in a, in a kind of in a steadier manner after having seen into our true nature a little bit. However, there are still many screens and walls of attachment and certain delusions which have to be slowly dissolved through gradual and regular practice. And it is this very dissolution which will help awakenings to occur. So gradual, a gradual process. However, one cannot control awakenings, and this points to the sudden aspect that these awakenings come uh, in their own time. However, one cannot control awakenings. Nothing is guaranteed. It is very easy to say let go. It is very difficult to do it. In the Zen tradition, awakening is often mentioned but over and over again, Zen masters will advise us not to be caught by the idea and glamour of it. They often say it is like seeing something for the first time that has been with us all along. So something very ordinary, very commonplace. It is like a fish looking for water until it realises it is swimming in it or someone who's looking for their head until he or she bangs it on a post and realizes it has been there all the time. This is a reference to the, the, um, the fable of Enya Data, who um, thinks he, he has lost his head until somebody bashes him over the head. So this Zen awakening is not metaphysical and will not take us to some other dimension, nor is it going to transform us in a split second into Mother Teresa or some venerable ancient Chinese master. But hopefully it will make us more aware of our own innate wisdom and compassion and help us to live more fully from these true qualities. In Zen it is said, Buddha is mind, mind is Buddha. The next section is headed three trainings, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Master Kusan used to tell us in his Zen talks that it was essential for all of us as Zen students to train in ethics, meditation, and wisdom. These were the basis for any Zen practice. Most importantly, they had to be practiced in unison it was like a tripod. With one or two of its legs missing, it could not hold anything and was pretty useless. In the same way, one had to practice the three trainings together for them to be even more effective. A focus on ethics by itself could make one narrow-minded, uh, puritan puritanical even, 
um, uh, acting in an upright fashion, but at the same time resenting when other people don't act in an upright fashion. So in a focus on ethics can make one narrow-minded. Meditation by itself could make one a little detached and self-absorbed, or possibly, again, uh, intolerant in the sense of not necessarily being able to deal particularly well with um, chaotic situations or environments, if one's just focusing everything in the meditation attached to to the peace and quiet that's the self-absorbed part wisdom by itself could wake make one a little dry and analytical dry in the sense of um, not flexible a bit rigid a bit cold not much warmth there in terms of how one relates to others if there's just wisdom without ethics and and without meditation in which we encounter ourselves again and again and again which we really see into our foibles our limits and our vulnerabilities and is this which which um, can so help with uh, developing a compassionate attitude to others and that's what the the, the, um, the precepts come out of and this is what she goes on to talk about in the next section ethics or morality are considered important because it has to do with our relationship to the world people things and how what we do affects ourselves and others Zen, Zen ethics come out of Buddhist ethics, which are based not on rules but on compassion and wisdom. The notion that as practitioners we intend to dissolve suffering for ourselves and others. We were to sum it up, uh, the precepts under one word we could say, um, skillful thought, action and speech. Skillful in the sense of uh, protecting our own uh, mind stream and protecting others, caring for, cherishing others. In a general way, it answers this question What would be the most compassionate and wise thing to do? The five basic precepts express this ethic in terms of restraint, of not causing any suffering or more suffering. And the five are the first five that appear in our list of ten. So do not kill, do not steal, do not have damaging sexual interaction. In ours the phrasing is a little different, we say harmful sexual relations. Do not lie and do not take intoxicants. Actually, in the original of this fifth precept, um, it was especially to not sell intoxicants to others. This was conceived as a more serious um, infraction than just um, taking them oneself. But again, we can, we can boil these five down to... Um, positive actions, although they're framed in the negative here as things to avoid doing. Um, Bachelor says, in terms of positive action, the five precepts are encouraging us to be harmless, generous, disciplined, honest, and clear-minded. These precepts are intended to be cultivated not only in body, but also in mind and speech, not only towards others, but towards ourselves. Just, just hear these, these five again um, from that perspective, in terms of our being, um, cultivating them towards ourselves, to be 
harmless, generous, disciplined, honest and clear-minded. I think many of us need to work on the first of these, that being harmless, the way that we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to ourselves when we, um, when we catch ourselves having got caught up in the thought for the last 15 minutes. Can we respond in a harmless way, not, not beating up on ourselves for having been distracted or not staying with the practice, but just at that point, cleanly come back to the practice. Note that we've wandered and come back. Not identifying ourselves with that, that harsh, judging parent who so often um, uh, can undermine us in the practice. Chinul, this is this again, this Korean master, ancient master said we had to learn to open and close the precepts, that is, to know when to apply them and when, in certain circumstances, not to apply them. And here we just see that, that Buddhist precepts are, are situational. They're not ironclad and they're not uh, completely fixed. They're, they're designed to be helpful guides. They're not, not um, commandments. And then he gives a, a well-known uh, uh, example of, of, of how this might um, unfold. If we are standing in a forest and a deer appeared and ran left, then the hunter appeared. If asked, we could reply that the deer turned right. <laughs> so we'd, we'd act in the best interests of the deer in that in that case rather than in the best interest of the hunter but not really actually because if you think if you're also saving that hunter from from the the negative consequences of killing the negative consequences on their mind stream even if that might have um, meant that the hunter went hungry In the Zen tradition, there are also bodhisattva precepts. Um, and apparently in, in Korea, lay people also would take these. Um, this is a list of 10 major and 48 minor precepts, which we don't um, uh, do in, in Japanese Zen, but I think they do still in uh, Chinese, Chan. And if, um, it can be read in the uh, Brahma Jala Sutra, if anybody's interested. Next section is headed Quietness and Clarity. We'll make this the last one. The second training is meditation. When we meditate, we can cultivate concentration and inquiry. And this is, applies to all the different practice we do, to the practices we do. They may have more of an emphasis on the concentration aspect or the inquiry aspect, but they all involve both. Concentration helps to still the mind and inquiry helps to make the mind clearer. In order to still the mind, one concentrates on one object. It can be the words of a question, in other words, a koan, and she uses the um, expression hua do to talk about the, the koan, which just means the nub, like the central um, word that one uses, one takes up in practice. So, an example with the koan mu, the whole koan is a monk asked Joshua, does even the dog have the Buddha nature? And Joshua said, 
mu. That's the koan, and the huado is just the word, the single word mu. Though it can be the words of a question, the huado, the breath, the present moment itself. The aim of the concentration is to stay as long as we can with the meditation object. It is quite difficult as the mind has the tendency to wander to the past, to the future, to the shopping list for dinner. We need to remind ourselves of our intention to meditate, to focus on the question or the breath or the body sensations, uh, if we're doing shikantaza so that we can come back repeatedly to the object of concentration. After a while, we come back more quickly and stay longer on the object. Master Xu Yun said, and Master Xu Yun's a great 20th century Chinese master who lived to the age of 120. He said, a thousand thoughts give us the opportunity to come back to the question a thousand times. Very helpful to remember this. A thousand thoughts give us the opportunity to come back to the question a thousand times. And it's that moment, we have to remember this, it's the moment of recognizing that our mind is somewhere other than on the practice and bringing it back to the practice that is, is what is changing our neural pathways. That's the most important moment that moment of, of coming back, of letting the thoughts go and coming back to the practice. And, and Martine Bachelor comments on this, uh, saying, so being distracted is not the problem. Staying distracted is. Being distracted is not the problem. Staying distracted is. And once we notice we're distracted. Right there, there's an opportunity to come back, to release the hand of thought, as uh, Uchiyama Roshi said. The effect of concentration and coming back is threefold. First, our mind is more peaceful because there are fewer thoughts engaging it since we are concentrating on one thing. Secondly, our thoughts become less agitated and obsessive because we do not feed and indulge in our patterns and habits of mind like ruminating, judging, daydreaming, planning, fabricating, etc. as we come back again and again to cut their threads. We may not um, completely not do these things, but we do them less. And this image of cutting threads is a useful one. And think of that, um, some of you may have read Gulliver's Travels uh, by Jonathan Swift. And in one of the sections, um, Gulliver gets captured by the Lilliputians. And they're these tiny human beings which uh, stand about um, they're about the, the, the height maybe of his, of his ear, um, but they manage to um, pin him down by um, hundreds of tiny, tiny ropes. Of course, he could easily break one of those ropes. It's like, it's like thread, cotton thread to Gulliver, but because there are so many, they hold him down with these, with these ropes. And uh, so, if we relate that to our practice, then um, none of these, the, the, um, the ropes that tie us to um, our limitations is, is terribly thick. Um, but cumulatively, they ha can have a big effect on our sense of freedom, on our actual freedom. So to, to understand that we just have to keep snipping, cutting away, moment by moment, thought by thought. But it does, over time, make a difference. So we cut the threads again and again. 
And then the third effect that she mentions is that we are more aware of ourselves and our, and our surroundings as each time we come back, not only do we come back to the question or the breath or the body sensations, but we also come back to the present moment. This has the effect of allowing us to be truly aware, alive and present, experiencing this life, this being, become more vibrant and clear. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.com dot org dot nz